You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferret. Now, after being without a Speaker of the House since October 3rd, when Republican Kevin McCarthy of California was ousted from the position, Republicans united on Wednesday this week to elect Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana to run things in the House. Johnson has been a vocal and unapologetic ally of former President Trump and was a proponent of overturning the results of the 2020 election. In particular, the votes in Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. What more should we know about who Johnson is and how he ascended to this powerful position, just third in line behind the vice president to become the leader of the United States? And now that the three weeks of speakerless dust has started to settle, how is he going to be part of addressing the multiple crises facing the federal government at home and abroad? And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have about Johnson and his ascension? What thoughts do you have about how things played out this week in Congress with multiple candidates emerging then flaming out for various reasons, not the least of which was a still powerful thumbs up or thumbs down from former President Trump? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email us at ideas at WPR.org. Maurice Shepard is a professor of political science at Madison College. Maurice, welcome back to Central Time. Hi, Shereen. Thank you. So what was going through your mind as you watched the events of this week unfold? Uh, uh, well, great uncertainty, like most Americans, also with the hope that it would end uh, sometime soon. So, uh, as you mentioned already, you know, just over three weeks ago, the uh, former uh, uh, Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, was um, removed. And uh, now we have a, a new Speaker, Mike Johnson. And I think we're we're heading into new territory here, particularly in terms of Mike Johnson, um, putting aside for the moment again, sort of all of the chaos over the last three and a half weeks or so. Um, For uh, Representative Johnson, now Speaker Johnson, um, he comes to the speakership not with a lot of leadership, political leadership experience. So um, he's always been sort of someone sort of in the background producing, once again, papers, filing lawsuits and that sort. So um, very little is known about him or if he has, once again, a particular leadership style and how he will actually perform. So uh, there's still a a bit of uh, a great deal of unknown here, I should say. Given all of that, when Johnson finally emerged from, let's face it, it was a scrum, how did you view that landing point? Were you surprised that this is what happened? I wasn't necessarily, well, I wasn't surprised for two reasons. One, um, in terms of modern American politics, particularly in the House, and in particular, in terms of the Republican Party, um, the party cohesion is um, is breaking apart, greater, once again, polarization and fragmentation within parties. So, you know, that was difficult. In terms of, uh, for Mike Johnson, he actually sort of, you know, having gone through the first few rounds of, once again, uh, Steve Scalise and, and Jim Jordan, you know, it sort of became clear that they would need someone that, um, of course, Democrats would not vote for this person, but someone that all Republicans could sort of get behind. I think Mike Johnson, uh, he fit the bill because, one, he was low profile. He did not have a lot of, once again, other Republicans who uh, maybe really hated him. Maybe they didn't like him, but they didn't hate him. Second, um, as you pointed out earlier, um, he's a mega supporter. So he, again, and he supported um, former President uh, Trump, 
So you got that stamp of approval. And third, I think for the Republican, uh, for the Republicans in the House, they were just exhausted. Um, it was time to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, they were exhausted, and plus they understood that um, the, that the United States and the world needs a functioning Congress. Do you feel like Johnson's lower profile perhaps worked in his favor, given that Representative Jim Jordan has a regular presence on Fox News and he failed? Yeah, I've, I've heard some comment, uh, commenters make uh, uh, the, the remark that um, uh, for Mike Johnson, he's just uh, Jim Jordan in a better suit. <laughs> so um, it, in terms of uh, in terms of political ideology, I don't think that they are in terms of comparing uh, Johnson to Jordan. I don't think they're very far apart. I think where there is a difference in terms of uh, Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, is that um, one, he's a lawyer. He's a trained lawyer. Um, uh, social, strong social conservative, similar uh, uh, to Jordan. Um, and also, uh, again, his, as you mentioned already, his background, he's, he's been more sort of a person, again, not out front, again, where Jim Jordan was always sort of leading with his chin, if you were, um, for Mike Johnson, he was always somewhat in the background, but always involved. When you look at his record, you can see that this is someone who has always been, again, part of not just the Republican Party, but a strong um, social conservative, strong social conservative wing of the Republican Party. We're talking about the new Speaker of the House of Representatives who took the gavel this week after a contentious few weeks in Washington. Maurice Shepard is a professor of political science at Madison College, sharing his perspective. You can call in with yours, 800-642-1234. What more should we know about who Mike Johnson is? Well, I think it's important to know his, um, as much as we can, his his record and who he is. Um, there was an article, uh, I think, just yesterday in Politico that sort of highlights the fact that he has a, he has a, he has a long paper trail, um, articles that he has written, interviews he, he has given, um, lawsuits that he has been a part of, such as the one, I think it was uh, Texas versus Pennsylvania, that sought to, again, sort of overturn as a as a um, election denier of the 2020 uh, presidential election, sought to overturn once again that election. Um, we need to know sort of how he thinks. And now his paper trail, the paper record, uh, people are going to start taking a closer look at that. It's It's not enough to just say that this individual is a social conservative, someone who is clearly, and he has stated on the record clearly against, once again, um, reproductive rights, uh, issues related to gender identity. Uh, it's important to see exactly you know, how he thinks and what this might mean for legislation moving into the future. Being the Speaker of the House, he will be able to set that agenda in terms of what legislation comes to the floor and what doesn't. He hinted at his Christian faith and philosophy on Christianity's central role in American government when he was making his first remarks to the House. Here's a clip. It was in 1962, in 1962, that, that our national motto, In God We Trust, was adorned above this rostrum. And if you look at the little uh, guide that they give uh, tourists and constituents who come and, and, and visit the House, if you turn in there to about page 14 in the middle of that guide, it tells you the history of this. And it says very simply... These words were placed here above us. This motto was placed here as a rebuke of the Cold War era philosophy of the Soviet Union. That philosophy was Marxism and communism. 
which begins with the premise that there is no God. This is a critical distinction that is also articulated in our nation's birth certificate. We know the language well, the famous second paragraph that we used to have children memorize in school, and and they don't do that so often anymore, but they should. He went on then to recite that all men are created equal, emphasizing that men are created, not born equal. What do you make of that? Again, he is now that he is having greater exposure, we're getting to see more in terms of who and what he really is. Um, I would say for myself and and maybe for others, um, we need to give him a chance to sort of get into the position to understand what his role is. I think, again, and he is, he is a trained constitutional lawyer, so this is not someone who uh, doesn't uh, understand what he's saying. He fully understands what he's saying. But if you're going to be, again, an elected official, in particular, the Speaker of the House, um, there needs to be some balance there. Um, we have the freedom to, and I am not a, a once again, a theologian, but, um, you know, we have the right to, once again, our religious beliefs and that sort. But when it comes to government, I think particularly for the American founders, they looked at government in a much more pragmatic way in terms of American pragmatism. Work, government should be there to serve the people and uh, religious beliefs and that sort. You know, that's a private matter. We have Chris on the line from Fairchild who wants to weigh in here. Hi, Chris. Thanks for calling. Hi. Um, so first off, I would like to just point out that uh, Representative Johnson was one of the key writers of the amicus brief, which was used uh, in many cases to push forth the agenda of disqualifying many electors in the United States, um, which I happen to disagree with. Uh, also, I would like to point out uh, that any use of language that refers to these people as um, Republicans, I feel, is inaccurate. Uh, I think this really points out a new fractionality within that party and a new form of conservatism, which is not consistent with what we would consider the GOP. Thanks, Chris, for that call. Maurice, what do you think about what Chris said? I think Chris is on the mark with that, particularly as it relates to, once again, the idea in terms of the Republican Party um, and uh, that one and that in terms of American political parties, they've never been absolutely, once again, sort of uh, unified on anything. There there have always been sort of factions within uh, the Democratic Party and also in the Republican Party. Um, what we see happening right now Um, on the Republican side is, again, a faction there. But again, that faction, in terms of their ideas and their ideology, um, it's not clear if that will be, how can I put this, put to the best benefit of Americans, that if their ideas are so far sort of to the extreme, they may be inconsistent with, with most Americans. And I think Chris is also right in terms of Again, identifying those individuals maybe, once again, as Republicans, but of a particular brand. That's not to say that they are good or bad, but I think at first what we need to do is be able to identify those individuals and understand, again, their position. But they also need to, um, such as, again, the new speaker, um, uh, Mike Johnson, articulate how his views, how his ideas will translate into policy. Because at the end of the day, that is what this is about. These individuals are elected by the people. 
once again, working for the people. We have a, a liberal democracy, and that's what they're there for, is to work for the people to protect our rights and our liberties. We're talking about the new Republican Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Our guest is Maurice Shepard, professor of political science at Madison College. And we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. What should Speaker Johnson be prioritizing? What do you want to see from him as leader of the House? As a voter, how does this election influence how you're thinking about casting your ballot in 2024? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email us at ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Maurice Shepard, professor of political science at Madison College, talking about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson of Louisiana, and what he faces right out of the gate in that position. The number to call is 800-642-1234. Maurice, I want to circle back to something that Chris said. He talked about the deep fractionality of the GOP right now. Does it feel like today's version of the GOP is more fractured than in the past? Uh, Yes, across the board in terms of American politics. uh, We talk a lot about uh, political polarization. That polarization occurs between the two dominant parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But what we're also seeing now is greater polarization within the parties. So even in terms of on the left for the Democratic Party, you know, they have their extremes to the left. In the Republican Party, they have their extremes, uh, once again, sort of to the right. And the challenge here is this, in political science, we talk about having responsible political parties, parties that are, one, unified and that can put together a a coherent um, legislative agenda, but then two, can take that legislative agenda and implement it, and once again, and get that work done. I think what what we see in the Republican Party and also again to the Demo- in the Democratic Party to some extent um, that this that there's no such thing as a responsible party at this point in American politics that the the fractions and the polarization that's taking place between the parties and within the parties it is uh, to some degree short circuiting um, the work of government. Let's hear what Dennis has to say. Now, Dennis is calling from Two Rivers. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for the call. Hi. I've heard of, heard Glenn Grothman from the 6th District praise Mike Johnson for being a dedicated Christian, which irks me because, as far as I know, since Mike Johnson is supposedly this great uh, constitutional lawyer, they, he and Glenn Grothman and others should know we're supposed to have separation of church and state. This is not a case of saying, well, hey, it's my church and my state separated from yours. What do you think about what Dennis said about the separation between church and state, and why is the Christian nature of some of these um, these representatives important to people? As a political scientist, I agree with Dennis wholeheartedly. Um, we have enough on our plate, quite frankly, um, in terms of church and state uh, on the state side of this that that needs to be ad- that needs to be addressed. Um, and the two things I'll just highlight: there's a long list of things that Republicans would want. Uh, for example, in terms of the Biden impeachment to go forward, again uh, increasing border security. But the two that really stand out right now for once again the new Speaker of the House, the budget. 
Um, we're headed, once again, the, uh, we passed a continuing resolution to push the budget issue out until November 17th. That is coming up in a few weeks. That is what I think the new speaker, quite frankly, needs to focus on. That will have ramifications for Wisconsinites if we, um, again, go without a budget and, gov and, the, and the government, quote unquote, shuts down. And even if there's a partial shutdown, that will impact, once again, Wisconsinites in terms of federal offices will be closed. Um, some installations like Fort McCoy, again, will be uh, impacted. So that has real world ramifications. And the second thing is uh, for, once again, the new speaker um, needs to focus on, a, on the upcoming 2024 election cycle. Uh, right now, the Republicans have a razor thin majority in Congress. And from all the forecasts that I've looked at right now, uh, 2024 is going to be it's going to be a, a, a very tight race. It's going to be a squeaker. And there are two districts here in Wisconsin, um, uh, the first congressional district and the third congressional district um, in which uh, the forecast are those particular those particular two districts. Um, they may be in play. Let's talk with Nate in Milwaukee. Hi, Nate. Thanks for calling. I, I understand you have some concerns about the Ukraine funding. Yes. Uh, thank you uh, for uh, taking my call. Um, right now, we have a major war going on of Russian aggression. And it was concerning to me that uh, some Republicans in the House were essentially playing around with the funding to help Ukraine even before they had to uh, stop and find themselves a new, uh, a new speaker for the House. And so that is something I can't see as anything but uh, kind of reckless. And I'm also, um, I want to give him a chance to, to show himself, but it is extremely concerning to me that he was involved, as other people have already mentioned, in the effort to basically uh, deny the proper results of the 2020 election. And also, Louisiana itself doesn't exactly have the best reputation when it comes to either corruption or gerrymandering. So there is some reason to be a little bit cautious there, even though I want to give him a chance to basically say, show what he can do. And I don't um, praise or criticize him for Christianity, uh, but the um, Ted Cruz is supposed to be a Christian, and he bears false witness. He was involved in the election uh, anti-election efforts in 2020, and a whole bunch of other stuff, which were largely negative. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate you weighing in on that, and uh, you know the election stuff. It, that's that's one thing, and then the Ukraine thing. Uh, Maurice, what about the Ukraine funding? Is it, what's going to happen here? Uh, these are uh, in terms of for, uh, support for Israel, in terms of funding, and also for Ukraine. These are complex issues. Uh, and this is where there is a an ideological difference in terms of there are some individuals, I would say, that see the state and see the United States in a pot. We call it sort of a, as a positive state, um, that it, it needs to be active. Also, the idea that, that the United States has a, has a responsibility to um, you know, support free democracies around the world. Uh, with, with, in terms of funding for Israel, um, it, they're in an emergency situation right now. Most individuals, particularly in government, believe you know, that funding is critical and necessary. The issue with Ukraine, there is a policy argument here. I think that for uh, some individuals, they simply haven't made that argument clear. Uh, they want to support Ukraine, but there needs to be 
a strategy moving forward. I think for some, we don't, we may not want to have sort of funding for Ukraine become sort of an endless war or an endless conflict that we once again uh, support. So there is an argument to be made in terms of funding for Ukraine, um, in terms of, again, what are the goals of once again, the Ukrainian, con what, what the Ukrainian people want to achieve, is it achievable and that sort. Um, but uh, to just sort of, as some individuals have, have done sort of blanketly say, oh, we just won't fund Ukraine or cut off the funding. I I, that is um, un-American, to say the least. In our last 30 seconds, what will you be watching for in terms of his effectiveness as speaker in the coming weeks and months? To see if he can develop a leadership style. If one, if he is a leader, not everyone's a leader. Again, he has risen to um, pretty high ranks within the Republican Party um, based on, once again, his skill as a lawyer and you know supporting, again, the former president now. Um, we have to see if he truly can lead. He will lean a lot on the current Republican leadership, um, Steve Scalise um, and, and others, uh, what's it, you know, uh, Stefanik, um, the Republican uh, conference chair. Uh, but at some point, he's going to have to take the reins and he's going to have to sort of lead the way. Thank you so much, Maurice. We could have talked for another hour, I think. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Maurice Shepard is a professor of political science at Madison College. We talked with him today about the chaotic road to Republicans electing Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House of Representatives this week and the work he has ahead of him. Coming up Monday on Central Time, the FCC could bring back net neutrality rules. We'll find out what's changed since the rules were repealed and what a new change could mean for you. And a look at red flag laws in the wake of a deadly shooting in Maine. It's all coming up Monday here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, we talk about the scariest movies of all time, just in time for Halloween. I'm Shireen Seward, in for Rob Barrett. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward, and for Rob Verrett, you're with us on the Ideas Network. The website Money Supermarket recently came out with a list of what it calls the scientifically scariest movies of all time. They based their list on measuring people's heart rates while watching different films, and they came up with the 2012 film Sinister as the most terrifying. Now, that's just one very specific way of ranking horror movies, but it got us thinking what really makes a film scary and which movies have done it best over the years? We're joined by a film expert right now to talk about some of the spookiest movies of all time. We want to hear what you think, too, at 800-642-1234. What is the scariest movie you've ever seen? And what do you think makes for a really good scary movie? Is it the atmosphere, a good villain, or something else? Are there any scary movies you've seen recently that you liked, and why do you like them? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. 
Jocelyn Sapaniak-Grulis is an associate professor and the director of film studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Film Studies Program. Jocelyn, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me, Shireen. It's so great to be here. You're a movie buff, but, you know, studying film is your job. You love horror. What is the scariest movie you've ever seen? Oh, my gosh. I I am a huge horror buff. I don't teach a lot of horror, but I watch a lot of it. Um, I've seen so many scary movies, and I had to think about this because, you know what, the scariest movie I've ever seen has to do with my age and the place where I saw it. It was Poltergeist because I saw it at 7 on TV, and it scared me out of my mind for about 10 years. I couldn't (laughs) sleep with a closet door open (laughs) until... Well, you know what? I probably still can't, and I'm 45, Shireen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember how much that film scared me, and I'm 55. So I was older than you when I saw it, and I still was really scared by it. So what is it, though, about horror specifically that interests you so much? What is it that draws you in? Yeah, it's such a kind of hard question because I think that so many of us have this attraction to horror. Why should we want to watch something that makes us upset, right? There's plenty of things in real life for us to get really upset and scared about. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of catharsis in watching um, something really terrifying happening. Um, When we know that we're in control, we can turn it off at any moment. Um, So that's kind of a way that we often think about uh, why horror is so appealing. But I personally also think about Um, this incredible balance that horror has between the known and the unknown and the kind of promise of terrifying knowledge, the revelation of terrifying knowledge as somebody who is somebody who uh, does, you know, work with knowledge as my, that is my job as a college professor. I just find that so appealing. And that's a central component of horror um, since its inception, really. And that's really what I love about it. Well, I have to say that some of the movies from way back are the ones that scare me most, despite the fact that movies have come a long way. I mean, we have all yeah. these great effects now that can can mimic that you know frightening experience. But yeah. Jim from Arborvita called. Uh, he couldn't stay on the phone, but he, he thought so, too. He said to say the movie The Uninvited from the 40s is one of the scariest he's ever seen. Why is it those old time movies just are so frightening still? I love The Uninvited. The Uninvited is, like, genuinely scary. <laughs> it is definitely not a contemporary movie. I mean, that's almost, you know, what, uh, almost, it's, we're getting close to 80 years um, since that film has come out. Um, but, you know, I think that that's a great example of a film that relies on atmosphere and on implication. Um, I don't really find something like, like the Saw movies that scary. You know, they're gross. They're really disgusting. They're upsetting. But they're not scary in the same ways because they don't have that threat of implication. And when we look at films from um, an earlier point in time when it really wasn't common to have um, excessive score or um, all sorts of kind of outrageous effects, um, we look at how filmmakers could use things like shadow, use what is not seen, use, um, you know, what is behind a door that we never really see. And that, to me, that's what makes something actually really, really scary when we never have that full understanding of what it is that we're watching. Jocelyn Sapaniak-Galise is our guest today on Central Time. We're discussing the horror movie phenomenon and why people love to be frightened by what they see on the screen. What's the scariest movie you've ever seen? We want to know. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can email us to ideas at wpr.org. 
So do you go for atmosphere, for jump scares, a great monster? What attracts you most? Oh, my gosh, Shereen, definitely not a jump scare. (laughs) (laughs) I I am not a fan of the jump scare. Um, It's just I find it a little bit cheap. It does make me jump, but it's a little bit cheap. Um, I really love atmosphere. I love a Baroque set. I love um, I love a great villain. Uh, one of my favorite scary movie actors of all time is Vincent Price. Every time that he shows up in a movie, I'm guaranteed to watch it all the way through. He has this really kind of debonair, dashing quality where you both um, are a little bit frightened by him, but you also kind of want to hang out and have a martini with him. Uh, so oh, totally. And that things, voice right? of his, that voice of his just made, yeah, I know what you mean. And I love it to have a martini <laughs> with him. <laughs> he was a gourmand, you know. He was he was actually um, an expert cook and an amateur art historian and just a real man about town, but also made for one of, you know, one of the most uh, fantastic uh, movie villain actors that we've ever seen. Now, you've been watching some Japanese horror films lately. Tell us about those. I have. I'm really interested in um, when short stories are then, scary short stories are then um, made into or adapted into films. I I think that's really, really sometimes more interesting than even uh, scary novels being adapted because the filmmaker has a little bit more space, right? A little bit more um, experimentation possibility. So this this spooky season, I've been reading a lot of Edogawa Rampo, who is um, a Japanese writer. He's really famous for bringing the detective novel to Japan, but I really love his uncanny and strange, um, mysterious short stories. So I, I just read a novella of his called The Strange Mystery of Panorama Island that I would really recommend to everybody. It's really fabulous. It's, it's just about 70 pages long, um, but it has this really strange atmosphere that's, that's all about um, visual technology in the 1920s. And I don't want to give too much away, but it was adapted into a film called The Horrors of Malformed Men that was made in the late 60s. And the director of The Horrors of Malformed Men was able to uh, kind of transform some of the implications of what Rampo was writing about and make it about the horrors of, um, of radiation and the atom bomb in Japan. So I think mm-hmm. it's a great example of how um, a really great scary story can, can change in its political implications over time and be made into a really exciting, kind of outlandish, um, but fascinating, freaky-deaky horror movie. Let's find out what some of our listeners think. We have Rana with us from Cameron. Hi, Rana. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks for uh, this show. I love it. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, I would guess I was about 13 maybe. I don't even know. The first Halloween came out with Jamie Lee Curtis and what was so scary to me about that show was that um, I can't even remember what the guy with the hockey mask's name is, but he oh. showed up everywhere, any time of the day, uh, day or night. And to me, that was such a surprise to see him in the middle of the day stalking someone or whatever he was doing. And then it was a scene, a setting that we were all familiar with, the babysitters at the house. Mm-hmm. We're all familiar with Halloween, and these horrendous things are happening. Um, another favorite of mine is the birds. And again, I kind of come back to the idea that, well, we're all familiar with birds that are flocking, and it's not uncommon to see that, but it is kind of uncommon to see flocking birds that want to attack and mutilate people. So um, th- those are my two, well, I could go on and on and on, but I'm going to leave it there. Now. Thank you for the show. 
Thanks for calling, Rana. And uh, Jocelyn, I have to say, I agree with those. And and I love what she said about the daylight, because um, it's true. There was something so unnerving about seeing Michael Myers in the daytime in his mask, you know, just and, and not just things that go bump in the night. Yeah, I, I love Rana's examples, too. Um, I think what both of them kind of point to is how great horror movies sometimes bend the rules. Right. So we have certain expectations for how the genre operates. That's how genres work in general. Right. We love genres because we love um, knowing what beats are coming and seeing how the director will respond to those beats, whether it's a rom-com, whether it's a Western, whether it's a horror movie. But in both those examples, we have um, the slight bend to the rules. So in Halloween, Michael Myers shows up during the day. That's not how it's supposed to work. Right. right? Like things are just supposed to be at night. And that's part of what makes it so scary. I think about the film um, It Follows from uh, just under 10 years ago, where also a lot of things happen during the day, but it bends the rules as well by having um, the, you know, the scary apparitions appear very, very, very far back in the shot. So you'll get these really, really beautiful kind of wide, um, long shots, but you'll see somebody coming from the very, very back of the shot. And you know, it was brand new at the time, really. Nobody had really done it in the way that, um, that that film had done it. And that's what made it so terrifying. So anytime you see a horror film bend those rules and do it effectively, that's a kind of watershed moment in the genre. Well, let's go to Jack from Fox Lake, who's with us and has a, a recommendation. Hi, Jack. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, my all-time favorite horror movie was Black and White. There's not a drop of blood. There's no monsters, there's no ghosts in it, and it's called The Haunting. Oh, I I did see that a long time ago. Jocelyn, yeah. did you see that one? Oh, what a brilliant movie. Of course, it's based on the Shirley Jackson novel, The Haunting of Hill House. It's, it's just a phenomenal film. And again, it's all about implication. There's also wonderful use of sound in that film, right? Like the kind of knocking of the ghost in like hallways. It's, it's just fantastic. And it's also really wonderfully about, um, uh, and the book really deals in this as well, um, the kind of undercurrent of repressed sexuality from the main character that also is one of the things that threatens to like rise up to the surface. So I think it's a great example of how horror is always operating. Well, the batch horror operates on multiple levels. There's a level of the scare, but there's also the level of psychology. There's a level of ideology. There's a level of politics. And it's just, it's just a beautiful example. Appreciate you calling, Jack. Jocelyn Sapaniak-Gilis is the Director of Film Studies at the UW-Milwaukee. She's talking with us about the scariest movies of all time, and you can join in. The number to call is 800-642-1234. Why do you think we like to watch these movies so much, and why do you personally like them? Again, we'd love to know the scariest movie you've ever seen so we can add it to our list. And is there a spooky movie that stayed with you, even if it wasn't the scariest? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferret. Right now, we're picking up the conversation about the scariest movies of all time. Our guest is Jocelyn Sapaniak-Gilis, Director of Film Studies at UW-Milwaukee. Plenty of time for you to call in at 800-642-1234 with your all-time favorite scary movies. What makes them scary to you? Is it the jump scares, the atmosphere, or something else? Just let us know. 800-642-1234. 
or, or email ideas at WPR.org. Jocelyn, how can films scare us in ways that other media like theater or literature or video games just can't? Yeah, it's such a great question. I have been kind of turning this over in my head because it's something I've wondered myself as well. I mean, I've certainly gotten plenty of scares from a scary book or listening to something scary, too. And I really think it's about the use of the frame because film plays a little trick on us, right? It shows us this frame of action where we think, okay, everything that we need to see is contained within this frame. But in reality, um, it's often what's outside of that frame that matters more. Um, In a normal, you know, in a drama film, whatever, perhaps we wouldn't be thinking about this so much. But in horror films, that frame can actually be used to a very scary advantage because we can get lulled into a sense of complacency, right, with thinking that, well, we see everything that there is to be seen in this frame. But then in the best moments, right, in the best reveals of the best horror movies, we suddenly realize that there's so much more that's happening that we haven't seen at all. And I think it's precisely that kind of perceptual trick that film can play on us that allows, us, that allows it to really manipulate our senses and give us that really intoxicating sense of terror. We have Scott with us now calling from Green Bay. Hi, Scott. Thanks for calling. Hi there. I just want to share a, one of the scariest things that ever happened to me. I went to see a matinee of When a Stranger Calls back in the 80s. There weren't a lot of people in the theater, and as we were watching it, a bit of a spoiler alert, when the, the, the police call the babysitter back and tells her, that the, the killer's in the house, a woman in the audience screamed, and there was only a handful of us in there. And to this day, <laughs> I'm still inbred, you know, impressed on me, that scream in the audience by this woman. And it's always left me with goosebumps whenever I think of that movie. Oh, that's funny. Scott, When when um, whenever you watch that movie again, at that moment, do you hear that scream still in your head? <laughs> oh. Oh, yes. Even before that comes up, I'm hearing it already. So but it was just a great experience. I always laugh when I think of movies that give me goosebumps. And it's when a stranger calls because of the scream in the audience. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah, Jocelyn, sometimes it's just the things that are going on around us, right? That, that it definitely is. It definitely is. I love that story so much. I, it's so charming. And I think it reminds us that... Um, you know, we can definitely get scared by ourselves. I'm not one to watch a scary movie by myself at home. You know, let me be quite frank about that. But there's something about seeing a scary movie with a group, right, where we all are experiencing the same sense of fear at the same time. I remember going to see um, The Descent with my uh, now husband in, it must have been 2007. I think that's when the film came out, which is um, a really great um, scary movie about uh, these women who go um, who go uh, spelunking in this cave and find these horrible monsters. And the entire audience was basically screaming their heads off and throwing popcorn everywhere. And it was just like such a fantastic experience to see it like that because we were all experiencing this at the same time. And there's a real relief, too, when you all kind of scream together. I I just love that. (laughs) Yeah, there is some kind of like group release, right? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) We have Randy with us now. Randy is from Edgerton. Randy, thank you for calling. Yeah, I, I I think Spielberg does a great job with uh, like Jaws because you never see the scare almost through the whole movie. You, you don't you never see the shark until you know later on, and it's like it just the anticipation keeps building all the time. Mm-hmm. And and he did the same thing with Jurassic Park. You know, you know you don't see the the 
the big dinosaur, you, you hear it coming, but then, you know, and, and I also like the fact when they, they have stuff that's natural, like the birds. And the, mm-hmm. uh, there was a movie with Albert Finney, um, the a wolf, and I believe it was. And, um, and it was about the wolves that came back and they, you know, the, the Indians said, Oh yeah, they're here. And, and they came back. They're like super wolves and they killed all the, the people that were sick and stuff, you know, and, but they were hiding out and, the, you know, it's like, you don't see them till the end. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's all that creepy, you know, yeah. Like and, through the water and seeing the, the lady, the, the lady swimming and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden she's up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Steven Spielberg is such a master. And Jocelyn, sometimes I think it's the music. You know, when you hear that Jaws opener, don't you just get a little chill still? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And like, it's all about that music and music can serve to really heighten any kind of emotional experience. Um, But it works really, really well with ramping up um, the suspense in a scary movie. I think about all of John Carpenter's movies um, with the fabulous synth scores. And, you know, for most of them, John Carpenter wrote those synth scores himself. Um, So they fit Mm -hmm. so interestingly and so beautifully with the rest of the film because they're written by the director. Um, So I think that's a great example of that wonderful marriage of sound and image. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to Carrie from Milwaukee. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for calling. Thanks for taking my call. I'll make this real quick. Um, When I was a teenager, I did see the movie Carrie. And I, as a teenager, did look like Sissy Spacek. So when I was at the movie theater and the movie was over, I went to the bathroom and there were kids backing away from me. Oh, "Oh my God. Oh, my God. And then to top it off, this was cute, too. I just had my graduation pictures done. And one was sitting at my aunt's house. And my cousin came home with his with his boy, with his friend, and he's like, "Oh my God, who is that?" He says, "That's my cousin Carrie." The guy started screaming. Oh it's, no! It's so funny. So <laughs> to this day, when I introduce myself, I say Carrie, as in the movie, and then people they're like, "You, yeah, Carrie?" <laughs> no, it's cute. And so, like I said, I mean, I'm 65, and I I live that movie every day. So. Oh my goodness, that is. Thank you for sharing that with us, Carrie. And and that's that movie is really scary. I think. And who can forget the the blood over the head? You know, I mean, oh, they're all gonna laugh at you. <laughs> I know, I know, and I just really hope that Carrie has gone as Carrie for Halloween. Like, I really <laughs> want that to be real. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Let, well, let's, uh, we've got about a minute left. Let's take one more call here. Let's go to John from Belleville. Uh, John is with us now. Thanks for calling, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, my scary movie was as a kid in the theater, I saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah. And uh, love that movie. So intense because you couldn't go to sleep or you were going to turn into a zombie. Oh, yeah. And the way the movie ended, all of them were being um, transported into the town. You didn't know if they were going to succeed in intercepting them or not. These pods, you know, that uh, end up becoming your duplicate. And but it was not you anymore. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, John. Jocelyn, is that on your list, too? Invasion of the Body Snatchers? 
Definitely. I assume we're talking about the 70s and not the 50s version. <laughs> um, both are excellent, but the 70s one is really my favorite. Um, and it's, I mean, that moment, the paranoia in that movie, right? Like your neighbors are being replaced, your friends are being replaced, your loved ones are being replaced. It's such a, it's such a, a fascinating moment of paranoid filmmaking that's then encapsulated into a horror film. That's what the horror, best horror films do, right? They tell us about the politics of our current moment and enable us to deal with our anxieties around our contemporary world. And that's a great example of a film that still has that kind of urgent power. Well, Jocelyn, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a fun discussion. I have uh, all so kinds fun. of all kinds of movies on my list now. It was so fun, Shireen. I'm so glad we're both terrified of poltergeist. <laughs> yeah, me too. Jocelyn saponiak Glease is an associate professor and the director of film studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She talked to us about her favorite horror films and some of the scariest movies of all time. I'm Shireen Seward, and for Rob Ferret, you're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. Mm-hmm.